Welcome to the rooftop. This is another driveway edition. Walking down the driveway today talking about the congressional testimony in a post-mortem kind of way that I participated in with the House Foreign Affairs Committee on March 8th, 2023. Started about 10 a.m. Eastern. And the whole purpose was to examine, to tee up the botched Afghanistan withdrawal and the impact that that withdrawal and the following systemic abandonment of our allies has had on our veteran population, the nation, and our national security. Um, and so today's purpose for this podcast, you know, I want to start with a question is, is can you impact your arena without a title? And, and I always try to bring these podcasts back to you because it really is you who is going to make a difference in your arena. And if we are going to operationalize what uh, Robert Putnam calls the upswing, that return to social capital in our country, a, a trust in our institutions, a trust in each other, and uh, you know, common narratives that we tell ourselves in the world, all of which are required for a stable civil society that we can feel good about handing off to our kids regardless of our politics, to get to that upswing, to come out of this downswing, I believe that we need leaders like you who are doing your version of Pineapple Express, who are stepping into the arena when you realize nobody else is coming and leading and making an impact. And so on this podcast, we try to talk about examples where that's happening, but also to explore the art and science of influence and human connection that will help you be more relevant to people's goals and more relatable to their pain to move them to action. And today is no exception. You know, I I want to break down, again, in a post-mortem kind of way, the congressional testimony that occurred uh, on Capitol Hill with the House Foreign Affairs Committee and and, and provide it as, as context provide it maybe as a case study to explore this question as you look at the arena that you are leading in, as you look at the places in your community, your, your, your job, your, 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 your family where things appear to be broken and nobody else is coming to fix them, you know, can you indeed impact at a strategic level the things that need to be impacted without a title? And I'm hoping that by taking at least my perspective of the, of the congressional hearing, um, you know, we can start to break that down, that we can start to explore that and, and, and you can locate yourself in these stories and make up your own mind. Okay. Um, but I'm just going to kind of start by giving some background, uh, on the testimony so that you kind of know what led up to it. I'll talk a little bit about the preparation that went into the testimony, and then we'll go into what happened, uh, in case you weren't able to watch it. And also I'm going to ask Wes to post the, um, the opening statements, uh, certainly mine, and then we'll try to get the other ones on there as well. It would probably take you about 30 to 35 minutes to watch those, and I think it's worth it. I, I think there's a lot there to get your head around. Uh, but we will talk about what happened, and then in kind of the traditional military after-action review format, I'm going to talk about what went well, what didn't go so well, and what we might want to do in the future with these hearings as they continue. And then uh, I'll finalize it with um, some thoughts or takeaways that maybe you can, again, put back into your arena as you lead your Pineapple Express, as you lead your movement. So let's get down to it. And uh, again, get comfortable, get you some, you know, a, a pad and a paper. Uh, this is your time. This is time for you to reflect and, uh, and you know, get some clarity. And please understand that um, this isn't me, uh, you know, given a, this one time at Bandcamp story. What I'm trying to do is just lift the tent up on the testimony, the good, the bad, the ugly, from my perspective, what I took away from it, what I learned, what I saw, so that it might serve as context for you to locate yourself in that story. Um, you know, I testified with a panel of six at this, uh, at this hearing. I'll talk a little bit more about those other panel members a little bit. I'm not going to go deep on their stuff because I don't feel like it's my place to do so. Um, so I'll give a very high level overview of that. 
What what is striking is it was a test. It was a testimony to the full committee under this new Republican-led um, House of Representatives. Um, it, the subject was the Afghanistan withdrawal. Uh, it was a panel of six, and it included, you know, in particular, um, Tyler Vargas, last name, and uh, Gunderson, Aiden Gunderson, uh, two active duty members um, who were at Abbey Gate. And if you've seen Tyler's testimony, you know how compelling it was, how impactful it was. He lost an arm, a leg, a kidney, and um, according to his testimony, had the sniper or had the uh, had the uh, as a sniper, as a Marine Corps sniper up in the tower. He had the bomber who he believed the bomber uh, in his sights and never got approval to uh, to fire as hard as he pushed. Um, Aiden Gunderson was part of Operation Pineapple Express in a way. He was part of the, the White Devils, the uh, 82nd Airborne uh, unit that was uh, at Abbey Gate or in the proximity of Abbey Gate. And it was his company commander, Captain Red Sunglasses, and his first sergeant, uh, Jesse Kennedy, who really led the other side of Pineapple Express to go down to the four-foot hole in the fence, link up with our pineapples as they moved through the open sewage canal and presented their bona fides and then pulled them through, counted them through, and then put them on an airplane, took them across the airfield, you know, as it's described in Operation Pineapple Express. So it was so cool to have Aiden sitting to my right there and to, you know, kind of fill in that other side of what happened on the ground. I also think it's pretty cool that, um, well, let me just say there was also, I believe, an immigration attorney there. I wasn't super familiar with her. Uh, a guy named Peter Lucier, who was, uh, I think, with Team America. And then finally, um, Francis Huang, who was, um, is the leader for Allied Airlift 21, himself uh, a Vietnamese refugee as a baby that was brought out, went to West Point, um, and went on to lead uh, a, a rescue of thousands of Afghans. What an what a ironic turn. But all of the witnesses, I thought what was really cool was they spoke truth to power. They didn't try to play politics. They just laid it out there really honestly, candidly. I think the politicians probably would have done better to take a page from how they, how they testified. And, 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 and um, I'll talk more about that in a second. But the other thing that struck me was that the panel was really junior. You know, I mean, I think they referred to me as like the senior guy on the panel. I'm a retired lieutenant colonel. And that's kind of unheard of when you've got, the, you know, a full committee hearing like that. Normally you've got flag officers, secretaries of state, and that will happen. But the, that takes me into the, you know, what was the purpose of this thing? Well, it was to basically, as it was explained to me by Congressman McCall's office, the, the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, it, it was to be a scene setter, a nonpartisan scene setter to help reconnect the committee members and America to the emotional aspects of this withdrawal, the, the impact that it had at a human level, without the politics, just the storytelling, the honest, raw, unabashed storytelling. <clears throat> and I was asked to be part of that storytelling process. I had given uh, my testimony. Oh, and I also want to say this was the first truly public testimony uh, with this kind of raw storytelling guttural impact that has happened since this whole event went down in August of 2021. Can you believe that? I mean, almost a year and a half later, and America's just now hearing it. Um, again, an unprecedented witness panel in a lot of ways with no flag officers, no policy experts. Um, junior enlisted, one NCO, and a couple of field grades. And I just think, you know, going back to the original question I asked is, you know, can we make an impact without a title? You know, and I think that we can, at least in that regard. There should be, and I believe there will be, many more hearings uh, that will follow. But, but this one was to, was, and, 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 and all of these hearings will be designed to seek accountability, I believe, to identify issues and implement congressional actions that might address those issues. Now, I'm going to pause there for a long silence as I stop in the driveway and look out at the pasture full of cows blinking in skepticism. Because like you, I just, I don't know, man. I've, I've seen the track record of our Congress over the last few years on both sides of the aisle. And it's about as underwhelming as anything I've ever seen. But I will say they got 
the hearing on the books. It was a full committee. It was pretty well attended. It seemed to have the energy of both sides. They were participatory all the way through the day. Uh, we'll see. All right. I'm just going to leave it there. We'll just have to see. And I hope that anybody in Congress or any staffers who may happen to pick up this podcast and are listening, please know that the veteran population, the families of our military uh, fallen, our military families, they are watching right now. I cannot tell you the overwhelming response that I've had uh, on LinkedIn and other social media platforms to this testimony. And, um, you know, to the courage of Aiden Gunderson and Tyler Var- uh, 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 Vargas Andrews, I mean, just incredibly powerful. And veterans and military families, they are, they are incensed over this in some ways, and others are just seriously interested. So to Congress, I do hope that you, you follow through on this because your veterans and their families are watching. And they are watching with a bit of a jaundiced eye. They are watching with skepticism, um, but with some glimmer of hope in their bellies. It, what happens with that is up to you, Congress. What happens with that is up to you. I'll tell you that right now. I'm calling it out. And we will know if you balk. We will know if you punt. We will know if you equivocate or politicize. We're going to know, you know, because veterans are indeed the moral compass of this nation. It's why I belong to the Moral Compass Federation of 20 some odd volunteer veteran organizations, um, because I do believe we are the moral compass for the nation and we're watching. So we'll see a little bit of a divergence there, but, um, so getting back into the fact that there should be more uh, hearings, and the idea, again, is accountability, but also looking for where the issues are and then putting measures in place to address those issues. Now, my question to you is, if, is, if this was designed to be a bipartisan scene setter, how do you think we did? How do you think the panel did in its efforts to play our position and set the scene, to create an emotional connection to the committee and to the American people and to remind us all of what it means to honor a promise and how far we're willing to go to do it and where the gaps and shortfalls are on that as a nation. Did we set the scene for more hearings to follow in a way that is compelling and that lends itself to substantive conversations that will follow with people who are deeper on the policy, deeper on the responsibility kind of front? I'd like to know. I'd love to know either in comments to this podcast or on social media platforms, or if you want to tee this up in your own podcast, I mean, I'd love to know how we did. So that's kind of the background. Now let's get into a little bit on the preparation front. You know, I've, uh, one of the things that I always teach in my rooftop leadership business and in my, which is my for-profit, uh, on intentional purpose-based human connection to overcome trust gaps. And then also on the hero's journey front, on the nonprofit side, where I teach warriors and family members how to find their voice and tell their story, one of the things that is always consistent in that realm of human connection is preparation. I believe that influence really comes down, two-thirds of your influence, objectives, and outcomes are really built around how well you prepare. Um, and this certainly was no exception. The preparation that went into this testimony for everybody involved was, man, it was enormous. Um, and I'll tell you a few things about the preparation is, first of all, uh, I had been asked, as had many of the veteran volunteers, to give a full interview to Congressman McCall's team as they were putting this testimony together, as they were putting these hearings together. There's a ton of information on the record from all of these volunteer groups, which in a lot of ways, that's unprecedented. I mean, you talk about, you know, we always talk about private-public partnership and how the citizen can be a partner with the government. Well, this was on full display, I think. And that's why I believe, that's why I'm always saying, what's your Pineapple Express? Because I believe that our veterans showed us what leadership looks like in in a trying time when institutional leadership fails and nobody else is coming. And a lot of veterans gave full interviews on the lead up to this thing. Uh, I frankly had some reluctance to testify. I, I, I offered to do it. I, I agreed to do it, but I also felt in my gut um, a sense of reluctance to it uh, on a couple of levels. One, 
you know, being raised in the military uh, with the pecking order, with the chain of command, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I retired as a lieutenant colonel in 2013 um, who turned down a couple of battalion commands because I didn't like where things were going in Afghanistan. I didn't like where the careerism was going in the military, and I just felt like I could be more effective on the outside than I was on the inside. And so I retired, you know, and I hung it up. And here I am years later, you know, 10 years on the outside of that time in service testifying about an Afghan non-combatant evacuation. Like, who am I to even talk about that? that? That whole imposter syndrome, you know, that we often feel when we're going up to do something bigger than ourselves and we resistance, as Stephen Pressfield refers to it, just kicks in. And it, it definitely did with me. I was asking myself, who am I to do this, right? Um, but there was also some cautions that I had received along the way ever since this whole thing started by mostly flag officers, if I'm being honest, who felt like they were doing me a solid. They would call me up or they would email and they'd say, Scott, be careful, man, be careful, putting yourself out there, you know, and these, you know, <laughs> most flag officers that I know from the war on terror are very measured individuals. They're very measured. They, um, they were pretty loud during the war. Didn't miss an opportunity to testify, but boy, there sure weren't many to be found for this testimony. And um, I hope that changes because we need them. We really need their leadership. We need their participation. We need them to speak the words to so many of our veterans and military family members and families of the fallen who are asking themselves, was it worth it? We need them to say that it was. We need them to lead a path for us, to shine a light for us, what moral injury to moral recovery. And more about that later, but, you know, I was getting a lot of tongue-in-cheek counsel from very senior officers. I'm talking three and four stars saying, hey, man, be careful. You're getting set up here. And that's not, you know, that's not exactly comforting um, when you're getting ready to go testify in front of a full committee in the nation on, you know, the worst probably policy blunder uh, when it comes to an Af you know, allied abandonment in, in our nation's history. So there was that. There was the whole be careful thing. And then there was mostly for me, it was the what if I screw this up? You know, I think about all of the amazing people in Moral Compass, all of those outstanding groups like Sacred Promise and um, 1208 Foundation, like just these amazing groups, Flanders Fields that do so much and vets for NRF. And I thought, man... What if I screw this up? What if I go in there and I don't honor them? What if I go in there and I look like a clown or I miss something? Or what if there's somebody better who could come in there and do more justice to what they need? You know, that was really running through my head hard on the morning of the testimony. And I was really having to use a lot of my rituals and breath technique and things like that to just deal with that. Because I just didn't want to, I didn't want to fail these amazing volunteers that have done so much for a year and a half now and all the time before that in the war but then you know I, I kind of thought about my dad's words to me um, years back when I asked myself you know who was I to write the game changer book on the, the you know the, the the challenges that had happened with Afghanistan uh, with village stability operations and he said to me who are you not to who are you not to write it and what will happen if you don't and that's kind of what I said to myself is you know with this testimony who am I not to do it, right? I mean, I've, I've made it my point to be a public voice for what happened, to speak truth to power. I've done that on every, you know, in a nonpartisan way, in an apolitical way on CNN, MSNBC, um, Fox News. I've done it in my book, Operation Pineapple Express. I wrote it in the third person, not in the first person, like this one time at Van, Van Camp. <clears throat> so I kind of reassured myself that you know, I, I was a right person, maybe not the right person, but a right person to go in and do this. And then it just became a matter of resigning myself to do it and, and doing the breath work to get in there. But I always like to talk about preparation because I think for all of us, when we lead in situations like this and we realize that nobody else is coming and we're stepping into that arena in that moment, it feels so big. You know, it feels so daunting, so overwhelming. And the first thing we ask ourselves is, who the hell am I to do this? I'm an imposter. They're going to find me out. And the reality is, again, who are you not to? 
because nobody else is coming anyway. You know, and, and then what are the rituals and the techniques that you can use to get yourself ready to show up? That's the key. That's the key. Now, the preparation that I had done going into this thing, uh, man, was it intense. I, I, first thing I did was I set my purpose. It's like my job, my position that I'm going to play is to help set the tone for this whole thing. I'm going to try to help set the tone for other testimonies that are going to follow. I'm a storyteller. I'm going to try to tell the stories, and I'm going to try to set the emotional temperature for where this thing needs to go. And they told me that I was batting cleanup on that, that Tyler was going to go first, and that we would kind of bookend that thing. Um, and the other witnesses, I mean, I thought delivered magnificently in the various things that they were really good at. Um, but my thing was, you know, I'm going to speak truth to power. I'm going to tell stories and give examples that are emotional around how this has affected our national security. And put us vulnerable to violent extremist organizations rising up in the world, um, how it has also um, affected our, our standing in the world by the systemic, wholesale, multi-generational abandonment of our allies. <clears throat> but then also, you know, the aspect of moral injury and how this whole thing has, uh, how this whole thing has affected, you know, <clears throat> the way that we navigate our value sets. There are so many warriors and veterans who feel like their values have been compromised by people they trust, you know? And so that's a real challenge as well. And I tried to just speak truth to power on all of those. I wanted to give a language for moral injury. I wanted to uh, talk about moral injury and moral recovery in a way that maybe hasn't been done in a while, you know? And, and give us a language as a community to talk about it. Because, you know, like in the mental health arena right now, moral injury isn't even really considered uh, a true ailment, right? It's just like, a, I think, a syndrome, you know. But yet it's, a, it's underpinning so much. And, and so trying to build testimony around that, trying to, to, to speak truth to power around those three things, um, tons of preparation on that. You know, normally, according to my friend Anna, who was so helpful with the testimony, she says that like normally you get like 90 days to prepare to go to Congress. You know, you meet with the different members and there's just all this work that goes into it. Murder boards to get ready. We had like nine days, if that. I mean, really it came down to like four or five days. And I just want to throw a special thanks out to Moral Compass, the volunteers within Moral Compass, Tito, uh, Amy, Anna in particular, Jimbo, you know who you are. The way you guys stepped up, the hours and hours you spent on the weekend, the time you gave to us to make sure that we felt safe in that, um, in that committee room. Uh, also to Special Ops Association of America, you guys are the heat. Dave, thank you so much. Um, but yeah, it was just really, really intense to get ready for this thing. And I do a lot of public speaking. I do a lot of talks from the stage, the play. Um, but I'm telling you guys, like this workup was intense and it really, it really wore me out. Um, but you know, again, just doing that pre-engagement preparation and getting myself ready to show up made a big difference. Um, getting to spend some time with the other panel members before we went live at breakfast was really cool. But what really happened, I think that we can say, um, was first of all, we were able to submit a full written testimony, um, to the House of Representatives, excuse me, the House of Representatives and the Foreign Affairs Committee, all of us got the opportunity to write a written testimony. Um, I'll also try to make that available to you guys in the show notes. Uh, I'd love for you to be able to have access. I can only do mine, I think, but I think there's also a link that you can go to and access all of it from the witnesses. But, you know, you could do a written statement, which I did a couple. I did one on women and the way this has affected women. I had some really powerful input. It was International Women's Day. It was another thing I wanted to do, and my objectives was to call out that it was International Women's Day and that we needed more women on this panel and, and that we really needed to look at the impacts of women and girls in Afghanistan from this. So I, I, had, I worked with a couple of volunteer groups to capture that. And, but put, in, a, in other words, put forward a written testimony. We did that. Um, I thought Tyler's testimony just knocked the socks off everybody. I know I was sitting there weeping. So powerful. And um, again... The witnesses that followed, whether that was, you know, France talking about his time as a refugee and Allied airlift or, you know, Peter talking about 
uh, what he did with Team America. It was just, it was so intense. Uh, when it got to me, I felt, man, I was like, I was so spent. Uh, I thought, man, this is going to be tough. And usually I don't like to read from a script or anything like that, but I, I found myself kind of grateful that I did have the script in front of me and I was able to you know, anchor to that at times because I got pretty emotional um, as I moved through it. And again, we'll put the testimony in there so you can see it. But this was our opportunity to kick off the entire hearing with these opening statements. And I have to say, the committee was very attentive. They were very supportive. No one was really looking at their phones. And then I've been blown away by the support of all of the, the veteran community, the active duty community, the civilians out there. I just can't tell you what, the, what type of support we've received. And it was particularly helpful when, you, when you're feeling as vulnerable, I think, as we did. And just so wanting to get it, to do it right, you know. And I have to say again to Congress, your veterans are watching you right now. Uh, if I could say anything after this testimony, based on the feedback I've received, your veterans are watching. So, I think we've set the, the parameters, the context. Now I just want to do the true post-mortem. I just want to go through a few things I thought, again, using the old army after action review format what went well what didn't go quite so well what would we do differently next time um i thought what went well was the full committee i mean hats off to congressman mccall and the ranking member on the democrat side for allowing this hearing to be kicked off by kind of unconventional voices that were on the panel and and, and arguably it was pretty unconventional you know, and I, and I just applaud the committee for giving us a voice and letting our voices be heard because we have felt like our voices have not been heard in a year and a half. And let me be clear, we still feel like our voices have not been heard because the actions of our government don't reflect anything, right? You can give someone a stage and a platform, but if you just piss on their back and tell them it's raining, it's still bullshit, right? So don't, don't misconstrue what I'm saying here, but I do, I do appreciate the opportunity in that moment to be heard because normally it would be filled with policy wonks and flag officers who are telling us um, what they would have done differently, right? <clears throat> and all the reasons why it was justified. Okay, um, what else went well? I thought the opportunity to address national security was... Um, Great, because we have not been talking about national security as it pertains to the Afghanistan withdrawal at all. And, and I'm, I'm throwing this out to all the media outlets, including Fox. You guys are missing it. You're missing the dashboard blinking red in a pre-9-11 way, as uh, Congressman Mike Waltz said on my podcast interview with Ahmed Massoud, leader of the North, uh, National Resistance Front. <sighs> Afghanistan is going to follow us home. In many ways, it probably already has. The enemy has a vote, and there are 20-plus violent extremist organizations operating with impunity in Afghanistan, using it as safe haven to plan, prepare, project power, project violence on the West. It is only a matter of time. They have not lost their will. You know, it comes down to, I always talk about will and capacity when you're evaluating a threat. I mean, I agree that Ukraine is very, very important, but... When I look at a potential enemy like China or Russia or Al-Qaeda, you can't just look at capacity. Like Russia has massive capacity uh, to, to, to fight a sustained war. Maybe not as strong a capacity as we thought they did. Don't believe all the hype, but they do have a tremendous capacity. But what is their will? What is the will of Russia to wage war against NATO after having their ass handed to them for a year plus in a major resistance that the Ukrainians have made them slog for every inch that they've got. They're already tapped out on their reserves. Now, I'm not downplaying their potential, but I'm simply saying when you look at their will, their will, because you have to have both to wage war. You have to have both will and capacity. Capacity alone is not enough, in my assessment, to warrant necessarily putting all your eggs in the defense basket, right? It's, it's worthy of, I think, in many ways, what we're doing in Ukraine, which is sponsoring or helping, at least in some tacit ways, with the resistance 
to stand against a very, very potentially capable threat. But their will to strike at the heart of the United States, I think, is severely lacking. Now, so where do the, you know, then you look at like Al-Qaeda or ISIS. What is their capacity? Well, it was degraded, but now that we've given them their safe haven back and they're training on Afghan National Army compounds in Helmand and Kandahar and other places, everything that we're hearing from ex-commandos, ex-special forces stuck in country, plus the resistance fighters, is that capacity is returning. And what's their will? Oh my God, their will is over the, over the moon, right? Let's not forget the clarion call that went out to jihadist groups and donors and supporters all over the world when the Soviet bear fled Russia with its tail between its legs. That was nothing compared to what happened here, right? So it, this has energized and mobilized the Islamist, Islamist, not Islamic, Islamist fundamentalist donor base around the world. And to think otherwise is diluted, right? And so now you have both will and capacity manifesting majorly in Afghanistan in a pre-9-11 kind of way. Except this time ISIS is in the mix too, not just Al-Qaeda. So to be able to talk about that in an unfettered way, in an unvarnished way, was really great. And I, and I don't think I was the only one. There were lots of people echoing it. I don't know that it landed. I don't know that people truly heard it. But at least we put it out there. Um, next was the partner abandonment. We got the chance to really make the case for that, to make the case that we are guilty of wholesale, systemic, systemic, multi-generational abandonment of our allies. And multiple people, including France, who was a Vietnamese refugee, talked about how this goes all the way back to Vietnam and that we're really getting a nasty reputation for that. It, and, and, and that, you know, is bad. We were also able to talk about, in the spirit of partner abandonment, what could be done to address that. The Afghan Adjustment Act seemed to be back on the table on both sides of the aisle. That was great because that gives at least some pathway to our partners. Also, we were able to point out the National Mine Reduction Group. I don't know if you know about these guys. If you've seen, um, well, I'm not sure if they're in the movie Retrograde. I think they are. But th basically, the NMRG were, were the guys who did the kind of mind sweeping in front of special ops, particularly Green Berets, as they went on missions. These were the guys that swept for IEDs in front of the direct action raids. They were the guys we trusted to protect us from insider attacks by Afghan security forces. Like they were the most trusted. They literally were our brothers. And they are eligible for uh, special immigration visa right now, which the Afghan special ops are not. And there aren't that many of them, and they're very coherent, very organized. We could get them out immediately. And so being up, we, another thing that went well is we were able to say to the committee, get the NMRG out right now. That's a good base hit. It's a good first win. Um, and then finally on the moral injury front, um, I, I feel like we were able to give a language, you know, to moral injury, a grammar to talk about moral injury and moral recovery. It seemed widely received. Tons of questions from both sides of the aisle on it. And we were able to articulate that, hey, leaders have to be involved in this, not just active duty leaders, not just government leaders, but retirees, general officers, flag officers, admirals. They need to be involved, sergeants major. Like we all need to work together on the front end of this mental health tsunami that's brewing that is moral injury. And uh, being able to give, I don't know, give a, a language to that was, was really powerful. Um, okay, what didn't go as well as I'd hoped? Too much political grandstanding. I have to say it. Like, I'm just going to say it. And it's so funny because depending on, like, where your political affiliations lie, one side is grandstanding, the other side is not. Bullshit. Both sides were grandstanding, in my opinion. Not all of them. Some of the congressional leaders on both sides of the aisle seemed pretty darn genuine and seemed pretty interested in what the witnesses had to say. There were other congressional leaders who took the full five minutes to just kind of put their position out there for the record. That's fine. I get it. I think we've heard enough from congressional leaders, and that was an opportunity to really hear from the men and women who were at the ground level of this thing, both abroad and here at home. And I think they missed that. I think most of the feedback I've received from people who watched it agreed. 
that it was a stark contrast in leadership and listening skills from the panel members to the congressional officials who used it as an opportunity to kind of spew, all right? Um, it would be things like a Democrat would say, look, I don't want to be political, you know? I think it is really important that we look across the table here. It was Trump's fault. These were, this was Trump's Doha agreement policy. And I'm being a little facetious. But then you would have the Republicans say, look, I don't want to be political and it's important that we just focus on what's going on, but, but somebody in the administration is going to pay for this. Now, look, I'm all about accountability. But the point is, the tone in a lot of it did not represent a collaborative spirit to get to the bottom of a problem. Now, contrast that, for example, with Pineapple that had 150 constituents from all over the world during the worst part of the crisis when the whole thing was falling apart and our friends were being executed and we were getting signal videos of it. And I went back through the Pineapple Signal chat room just to look. And there were tens of thousands of entries from like August 21 to, you know, early September. And you know what? You know how many times I found the word Biden mentioned? Once. You know how many times I found the word Trump mentioned? Zero. Why? I mean, our, our veterans had every reason in the world to get pissed, but instead they just got to work. They didn't have time for it. They didn't have time for it because the problem was so important and so big and the stakes were so high. There was no time for that bullshit. And I don't know when our Congress is going to figure that out. I really don't. I don't know when they're going to be able to find a way to demonstrate in front of their veterans, hey, we're going we're gonna to mirror you. We're going to take a page from you. We put you in this fucking war. So we're going to take a page from you and we're going to mirror a can-do spirit to figure out what happened here and what needs to be done to make it right. Because we recognize that you're looking at us right now and you need to see that leadership, right? It's like, it's like two parents who have, you know, kids, little kids, and the little kids are demonstrating really solid personal skills courage in, in times of a, of a household in challenge. You know, they're, they're, they're helping their parents out. They're taking care of their sibling. They're looking out for each other. And then the parents in front of the children say, listen, you're absolutely right. Thank you for showing me this, but mommy's a fucking bitch. And daddy's a frigging asshole. <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry, man, but it's, to me, it's comical in a lot of ways. And, every, and I'm, not, I'm not alone. I have had so many comments and so many eye rolls on that. So I may lose some uh, popularity on Capitol Hill for that comment, but you know who you are. You know if you played it that way. The shoe fits, wear it. Um, because, again, your veterans are watching, and they're, they're very tired. We're very tired of this whole thing. We're very tired of the amateurish leadership that's being displayed. And there was some of that on Capitol Hill. And I don't think it should continue. Like If that's what you were doing in front of that panel, God knows what you're going to do when you get like policy wonks and these other people up there. And you're doing a disservice because you said it yourselves. You said it yourselves. You said to do this is a disservice to you sitting here right now. And then you would turn around and do it, Democrat and Republican. We watched you do it. So please don't equivocate on it. Just try to fix it. Um, I thought... There was wasted time getting comments on the record. I think I've addressed that. You know, Congress, here's a clue. I, I, I just kind of take this for what it's worth. You've probably had plenty of time to say what you have to say. Um, you might want to think about the questions that you ask to the people that carried the load for you. That's how I think this testimony could be really powerful, is load up your panels with more and more people who were at the cutting edge, who were at the tip of the spear, who experienced this, and just ask them thoughtful, open-ended questions that let them say their story. And shut the fuck up. And just listen, right? Because they have something to say. And, you know, I was taught in the military by my father as well that, that the best leaders are the best questionologists. And I didn't see a ton of that during the testimony. And I think we could get a lot better. Um... I didn't think there were enough questions about the actual withdrawal and the role that veterans played with active duty members and vice versa. I really, I, that really surprised me and I, a lot of other people too. I was genuinely expecting 
and did a lot of preparation around how Pineapple Express worked, how we used the open sewage canal and the four foot hole in the fence and pre-vetting using baseball cards and signal app and collaborative chat rooms plus one-on-one -on -one conversations. The value proposition that even though many of the active duty members at the gates were staring at a sea of thousands, you know, a lot of the veterans groups knew who these at-risk Afghans were, where they were, and they trusted us enough to move them responsibly and present them for being pulled in, right, in a vetted kind of way. That never came up. It never came up. And I think that's a big miss on this testimony. That needs to come up. So if they need, you know, House Foreign Affairs Committee, you might want to think about bringing in some more panelists that can speak to that. Like how that private-public collaboration happened and where it didn't you know but it's important it's part it's a huge part of what went right and what went wrong and what's best in america uh, but a lot of us were genuinely surprised by the lack of either interest in that or and again i think this is where grandstanding got in the way everybody was so anxious to have their shit heard that they didn't ask questions like that you know um, and i think that could have been better I have to say it because um, I got a lot of feedback on this. I, Congresswoman Titus's comment about why didn't you guys state something earlier before the Biden administration and then you would have had a lot less to criticize. Congresswoman, if you knew how much feedback I got on that question, you would not believe it. To include a Gold Star spouse in the room who literally stood up when you said that. It was offensive, frankly. I di it did not come across as a bipartisan question. It came across as very partisan, very condescending. I did answer your question, Congresswoman. I went back and provided a more thoughtful answer, which was essentially we were too busy living our lives and trying to put the war behind us because of what you asked us to do. And you weren't in there to hear that because you had already left <laughs> after you'd made your comments. I would be happy, Congresswoman, to have you on my podcast and debate that question and anything else you'd like to talk about because you strike me as someone who truly cares about this. So let me know. Have your team contact my folks and we will make it happen because I think a lot of Americans would love to hear your thought process on that question and where we go from here. Um, let's see. What do we need to do better? What can we do for future hearings? I think we need more women on the panel to include Afghan women, to talk about how this abandonment has affected that at a human rights level. I think we need more human rights experts to talk about the human rights crisis that's going on there. If the TV cameras aren't there, it didn't happen. That's not good. We are violating our American morals by allowing this humanitarian crisis to fester. And the American people, they need to know the gravity of this humanitarian crisis. Um, I think we need to focus on true accountability, not this I got you stuff. True accountability. Who's responsible within the State Department? Who's responsible within the Defense Department? Like real accountability, what went wrong so that we can then pivot into what needs to happen to fix it, like the Afghan Adjustment Act, like addressing how we're going to help our most at-risk Afghan special operations partners, both in Afghanistan, in third countries like Pakistan and here. I think you need to recognize the volunteer groups. Um, there's a lot of volunteers that have cashed in their kids' savings funds, that have gone through all kinds of mental health issues, that have lost their jobs. I think congressional recognition of those volunteer groups, even if it's a blanket recognition, needs to be part of what this hearing does. Focus on the National Mine Reduction Group. I've already talked about that. You talk about a base hit, that's something that could happen immediately. That's something that could be done right now. They are eligible for SIVs special immigration visas, they're coherent, they're well organized. The 1208 Foundation can move them immediately, like in terms of if they work with the government. Let's get that done, right? That if, you, if you're serious about asking us what can be done, and there is not a group that's more at risk than those guys because they risk everything for their American special ops partners. Um, I think the final thing I would say that needs to happen next is Department of Defense really needs to lean into moral recovery. Going from moral injury to moral recovery, this injury on the soul, this violation of what one knows to be right by the people we trusted. Our leaders, according to Jason Houck, our generals are AWOL. <laughs> We're not hearing from them. We need to hear from them, both active duty, National Guard, Reserve, and retired. We need our generals and our admirals to lead us in this moral recovery space. 
Help us make sense of this. Help us make meaning out of our lived experience. These are your NCOs and enlisted and junior officers who served you faithfully. Now's not the time to go silent. It's just not. And I realize uh, that that's hard to hear, but we need you. And we need you more than ever. So I think Congress, looking at that and some kind of, and I know they don't have oversight. They have oversight of state, which will be, hopefully they'll really get into some accountability there. They don't have oversight over the military, but they can certainly make strong recommendations and they can say it right to General Milley, right to Secretary Austin, um, and I hope they do. Um, okay, takeaways. We're gonna bring it back to you. Um, again, going back to that question, right? That question that I asked at the very beginning of this podcast, which is, can we impact without a title? And I wanna take some, you know, hit a few takeaways. I believe that we can. I believe that we absolutely can. I believe that we still have a voice in what happens in this country. I do believe we're on the edge of an upswing. I do believe that there is an opportunity to move into better days of increased institutional trust, trust in our neighbor and narratives that we share, that we tell each other and that we tell the outside world. I believe we can still influence strategically without a title. We don't have to have a title to do that. And if you look at that panel, if you look at how, and I know Sergeant Tyler Vargas has a a title, but his level of strategic influence far exceeded uh, the rank that he carries on his uniform in his final days as a Marine, right? And my point here is that all of us have the ability to influence at a strategic level, and it's our story that encapsulates our lived experience, our, the repurposing of our struggle, the generosity with our scars that gives us the ability to influence. If you look at what Tyler did and what Aiden did, they told their story, and they told their story with complete authenticity, with relatability, and with vulnerability, and as a result of that, there's no ceiling, there's no limit to how you can influence and impact people, right? Um, But preparation is everything. How we prepare for those moments. We can't just casually walk in the room. We can't read off our slides. We can't just worry about what people are gonna think when we talk. We have to speak truth to power and to do all of that, we have to prepare, right? Because resistance will kick in. It'll tell us you're not the right person. You're not worthy. You're You're an imposter. And all of those, you know, those tribal aspects of preserving our status will keep us from speaking truth to power. I believe that's what happened with a lot of our senior leaders in government and the military, is that they were worried about those things and they didn't speak. They didn't throw their stars on the table at a moment when it was needed. They didn't put their defense contract company at risk at a time that it was needed. Some of you did and you know who you are. I believe storytelling matters now more than ever. If you are truly wanting to make an impact bigger than yourself, I believe you have to train to become a storyteller, a strategic storyteller, a warrior storyteller, someone who is generous with their scars, willing to repurpose their struggle in the service of others through the stories they tell. And if you want some more thought on that, I believe the two greatest scar stories you can tell in those moments of influence, the second best one is the story you don't want to tell others, the stories you don't want the people in that room to hear that are going to make you feel uncomfortable and vulnerable. But the most impactful The most service-oriented stories you can tell that will have the greatest good and accelerate trust the most are the stories you don't want to tell yourself. I guarantee you, before Tyler started telling his story, you know, that if you looked at his face and if you listened to his emotions, you know, it it was a story that was hard for him to tell himself, to relive again. But his generosity was so deep his love for his country and his countrymen so deep that he was willing to repurpose that struggle, that terrible time, that memory of being thrown 12, 15 feet in the air and every part of his body having a ball bearing in it. He was willing to go back through that journey in the service of others. That's what storytellers can do. And that's what the country needs more than ever. We need the collective voice from you as it pertains to this particular issue, so I hope that you'll keep the pressure on. When we go into rooms that are high stakes, high impact, we have to be intentional. We have to think about the goals that we have, the goals of the other party while we're there and really set our intention before we walk in the room. Where we put our focus is where the energy happens and where things happen. And then being specific. It wouldn't have done us any good to go in that room and just talk in generalities, to play it safe, like normally happens in those hearings. We had to be specific. We had to talk about what was at stake. We had to talk about the Afghan Adjustment Act. We had to talk about being on the front end of a mental health tsunami. We had to talk about Brad being found dead in a Mississippi hotel room. 
and being willing to climb that ladder alone when you do this. People are going to throw rocks at you. People are going to not be your friend. People are going to push away from you because you're holding up a mirror to them. And being willing to go up on that rooftop by yourself, that proverbial rooftop, and tell your story, even if nobody comes along, is probably one of the hardest things of all this. But the reality is, if we don't, stasis is for amateurs. Staying still, not moving, that's the heart, that will get us killed quicker than anything if we're trying to create a movement, if we're trying to inspire people. Because at the end of the day, national security, partner abandonment, moral recovery, they're all on the table now. They're all on the table, and we can now hold Congress accountable to a language that we've helped them understand. That was our Pineapple Express, right? And for, for me, you know, that's where I'm going next. Uh, from here, if you're wondering, people have asked me, like, okay, now what after the testimony? I'm going into national security, partner abandonment, moral recovery, uh, shadow tribalism in our country, the way we're dividing ourselves, the way that Congress kind of acted to each other. I'm going to keep illuminating that because I think it can serve you in the movements you're leading. But those are my Pineapple Expresses. I'm going to use Pineapple Express to address those things. The Hero's Journey, my nonprofit on storytelling, and our play, Last Out. You're going to see me pivoting hard into the play. And I hope that you'll be part of that because I believe it's one of the greatest vehicles to address moral injury to moral recovery. To illuminate it to the American people, to help inform them, to help inform our politicians while also validating and healing our veterans and military families. But how about you? Right? As you look at your life and you realize that nobody's coming, that piece of cheese that's laying on the floor in your arena that's starting to stink the place up, if you don't pick it up, nobody's going to pick it up. So where will you step into the arena? When will you step into the arena? And what's your Pineapple Express? Because we need you more than ever. It's not going away. And Robert Putnam is exactly right. We are capable of an upswing, but it starts with you. Thanks for what you do. Thanks for all the support you showed us in testimony. And I'll see you on the rooftop.